for granting me the opportunity to preach this morning. I hope this morning you will hear the Apostle Paul speaking in Christ, saying, be reconciled to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. When I was seven years old, my parents took me to the theater to see Hook. The film starred Dustin Hoffman as Captain James P. Hook, the nemesis of Peter Pan. It had a strange mix of childish and adult themes, and I was amazed at just how awful Captain Hook was. Hook kidnaps the two children of a now grown-up Peter Pan to Never Neverland and attempts to turn them against their father. Hook creates a fantasy world for Peter's 11-year-old son, Jack, who loves baseball. Hook makes much of the fact that Jack's father, Peter, missed his recent baseball game. Hook would never miss your game, he tells Jack. Hook assembles his pirates at a makeshift baseball stadium in order to give Jack an opportunity to be the game's hero. But the ruse is almost discovered. With Jack at the plate, out in left field, the pirates begin chanting, run home, Jack, run home, Jack. And Hook's spell begins to weaken over the young boy. Jack begins to remember his little sister, Maggie. Maggie, who is much wiser than Jack, has been separated from him. Maggie implored him before being locked away. Jack, you listen to me. Never let him make you forget mommy or daddy. You have to find a way to run home. Run home, Jack. As this memory starts to return to Jack, Hook, knowing his plan is in peril, bellows to the bleachers. No, no, it's backwards. Turn it around. And just like that, the pirates start to chant, home run, Jack, home run, Jack. Jack puts away his sister's message and yields again to the fantasy around him. The pitch is thrown and he hits a home run, to which Hook responds, you did it, son, that's my boy. And the seduction is complete. I wanna suggest that this seduction scene from Hook can help us appreciate today's epistle reading, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. In it, Paul speaks authoritatively for Christ to the Corinthians. He sincerely wants them to run home to Christ crucified. Paul wants the Corinthians to leave their superficial home run delusions and be reconciled to God. There will be two points for, for us toward the end of the message. Number one, we need to appreciate that Christ's appeal comes to us through the preaching of the gospel from the Holy Scriptures. And number two, we need to run home by faith again and again to the joyous exchange of our sin for the righteousness of Christ crucified. The two points have to do with authority and acceptance. Second Corinthians is a custody battle, a contest of authority. The Apostle Paul is dealing with a group of self-styled super apostles who have been trying to seduce the Corinthian church in his absence. Paul is compelled to commend himself to the Corinthians. He is forced to it based on the dissension sown by the super apostles. It's a rhetorically charged confrontation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy toward you, since I betrothed you to one husband 
to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it ready enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. So who are these super apostles? They are the home run jacks. Home run jacks are selfish. They make slaves for themselves and are in it for themselves. They arrogantly pretend that they work on the same terms as Paul and the other apostles who were actually with Christ. Home run jacks care more about how they sound than their substance. This arrogance makes them shallow. As you can imagine, they are not likely to be very effective in dealing with high-minded arrogance or with sensuality, sexual immorality, and impurity in the church. They have only shallow remedies. If they succeed in anything, it may be in teaching you to become vain like them. Sin and the cross are marginal. The super apostles end up deceiving you. They give you that home run, all is well with you when you listen to us kind of feeling. Your outward appearance may change, but your heart remains untouched. Home run jacks are so self-inflated that they disregard those who suffer. They dismiss Paul's suffering for Christ as a deficiency of Paul's. And they say of Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Home run jacks aren't really super apostles. They're superficial apostles. What about Paul? He's the real McCoy, a real run home jack. He is officially sanctioned by Christ and he is sincere. He conducts his ministry in the sight of God and speaks in Christ. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Chapter two, verse 17. Paul's sincere service to God in Christ for the church is demonstrated in his suffering and in his sanctification. He cares not for himself, but for Jesus Christ, the foundation, which he himself laid in Corinth. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, Jesus Christ. He has endured horrors for the sake of Christ, and he commends himself by his character, putting falsehood to death, mortifying sin with the weapons of righteousness for the left and right hand, as he says. He is the sincere apostle who speaks for Christ in your midst. He has the ministry of the Spirit. He wants you to listen to him, to run home to Christ, to repent and return to the gospel foundation you embraced through his proclamation. Now, as we've thoroughly established, there's a conflict between Paul and the super apostles. But things are not as bad as they could be when Paul writes 2 Corinthians. Let's quickly get up to speed on the situation. Paul established the church around 50 AD, remaining in Corinth for 18 months. Acts 18, it's easy to remember, 18 months. About three years later, he wrote from Ephesus and sent 1 Corinthians to them. Then over the next year and a half to two years, things got a bit dicey. Paul made his second visit to Corinth on his way to Macedonia. And he intended to come back through Corinth afterward, but Paul's second visit was bad, painful. He actually calls it painful. Someone in the Corinthian church disparaged him so badly while there 
that when he moved on to Macedonia, he thought better of making that third visit to Corinth. He wanted to spare the Corinthians an ugly showdown and wrote a painful letter to them. That third visit still hasn't happened as Paul is writing 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, roughly two years after 1 Corinthians, probably 56 AD, according to commentator Ben Witherington. The painful letter did achieve Paul's purpose. A majority of the church supported discipline of the man who had pained and offended Paul. But there is a lot to be resolved and a lot to do. There remains a minority in Corinth questioning whether Paul is a wishy-washy, inferior, or even deceitful apostle. These thoughts have been incited and encouraged by the so-called super apostles. So enough with background. Paul is defending himself, and the Corinthians need to listen to him as one who speaks for Christ. To the passage, verses 14 to 17. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Almost all of the first-person plurals in this passage, the we's and the us's, refer to Paul and his co-workers. Paul and they understand Jesus Christ to be the last Adam, a representative man who represents a new humanity. One has died for all. As one for whom Christ died and rose, Paul is living not for himself, but eagerly for the interests of Christ. As he says in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ. The love of Christ is governing and directing Paul's ministry and way of life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The suspicious minority in Corinth may question Paul's travel itinerary. They may also think he is ashamed to take financial support and instead attempts to sneak money on the side through his collection for the saints. But Paul doesn't make plans arbitrarily to his own advantage, and he doesn't cloak deceitful aims under pious guises. He is not a cynical peddler of God's word. Paul and his companions are sincere messengers. They have served the Corinthians for the Corinthians' upbuilding at great personal cost. Later in the letter, Paul writes, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The love of Christ is Paul's motivation. He doesn't go merely for appearances like the superficial apostles. He is not a servant to selfish desires. Jesus once looked to him like a failed blasphemer who had unleashed a dangerous sect on Judaism. But Paul was forcefully reconciled to the king, if you recall. He wants the suspicious Corinthians to return to that living foundation that his preaching laid, the crucified Messiah of Israel, who was vindicated as innocent and righteous before God in his resurrection, the promised new creation has begun in Christ. Verses 18 to 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself, us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God commissioned the apostolic witnesses to publish the gospel. Sincere Paul has been entrusted with the ministry and message of reconciliation. As Jesus said to his messengers in Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. William Tyndale called this message of reconciliation the preaching of the atonement. God is kindly disposed to us by Christ's sacrifice, which is, in prayer book language, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. In the death and resurrection of Christ, Christ fulfills all righteousness. The righteous one, the propitiatory victim, reconciles God to us. He does the will of God. He is victorious, triumphing over sin, death, and the devil. He satisfies the demands of God's holy, righteous, and good law. In Christ, God justifies the ungodly and forms a people for himself who will enjoy the glory of God's new creation. In Christ, God does not count our sins against us. He does not impute them to us. Romans 4, 5 through 8. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In all this, God is proved just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All this is one through Christ apart from our works. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. That phrase in verse 20 is not primarily a slogan for all of us to chant. Of course, there is a priesthood of all believers, but the we here in this verse is decisively Paul and his fellow workers, these sincere speakers and sufferers. As if it could become any clearer that Paul is speaking in Christ, Paul adds, God making his appeal through us. So here's the thing. You don't trash an assembly and expect protection from its government. You don't reject a delegation and expect to have a favorable relationship with the head of state. So this brings us to the first major application point for us. For us, Christ's authoritative appeal comes through the pure preaching of the gospel from the Holy Scriptures. Recognizing Christ's authoritative appeal was difficult for the Corinthians, wasn't it? They had the superficial apostles chirping in their ears. Has Paul moved on to greener pastures? Why doesn't he accept your patronage? Can you trust him with money? Does he really preach Jesus properly, as properly as we do? Recognizing Christ's authoritative appeal is difficult for us today. We hear a flood of competing voices, and it can be difficult to know who speaks for Jesus. Even in the church, this is going to be a struggle. We were called of God through his servants, united to Christ by faith, and entered the inaugurated wedding feast 
by baptism. We feed spiritually on Christ, who is the bread that came down from heaven. And yet, it is a struggle. We doubt that God is present. We forget the message of his servants, the apostles and prophets. We become self-deceived through the cunning suggestions of superficial apostles. The Global Anglican Future Conference, GAFCON 3, ended on Friday. And the preaching of the gospel by GAFCON's chairman, Archbishop of Nigeria, Peter Oko, was noteworthy on this point of being deceived. Archbishop Oko said that when we try to exist in communion with false teaching, such as that of the Episcopal Church, it's like a slow-acting solvent which gradually dissolves the convictions of the Orthodox, while all the time we think that we still hold to the apostolic faith. He said, it is especially from North America that a false gospel of inclusion without repentance has come. Paul spoke authoritatively in Christ in his time, and Christ speaks authoritatively today through the Holy Scriptures, particularly through the preaching of God's word by the ministers of his church. Though the scriptures are not easy to interpret on all matters, they are sufficient for us. And God uses his ministers to communicate his word to us, delivering all things necessary to salvation. The preaching of the word of God, the proclamation of the gospel, is an ordered extension of the message of reconciliation. On this point, Archbishop Bacot appealed to the Gafcon Assembly, the gospel of God is the good news about human justification through the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ for the sake of mankind. This gospel is to be proclaimed faithfully. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ Jesus as the Lamb of God, the only acceptable sacrifice for human sin. Faith derives from the confession made and shared through preaching. Preaching and teaching of the gospel are central to the gospel of God. When God seems absent, Remember that he appeals to us through the preaching of his word. Remember that the spirit can and does convict us regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Hunger for the message of reconciliation, that glorious gospel of the atonement Christ has made, that alone prepares the way for our devotion to God. And finally, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The superficial apostles would take us back to that baseball stadium. They would have us slap the plate of Christ crucified with our bat, hit our home run, cross the plate on our way to the dugout, and move on. But the sincere apostles and prophets want us to run home and stay with Christ crucified to be built on that firm foundation, to be rooted in Christ by faith, without whom we can do nothing. Hear the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. As Paul taught the Philippians, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith.
How exactly was Paul able to be a sincere minister in the sight of God? By faith in Christ, who knew no sin, but took the sin of the world upon himself down to death on the cross. This is how Paul was able to stand in the sight of God and be a sincere minister. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, we have come to this joyous exchange. Verse 21 is meant to amplify Paul's urgent appeal to the church. Be reconciled to God. Remember, Paul, the sincere apostle, betrothed, engaged the Corinthians to one husband, presenting them to Christ. Paul was perplexed and anxious for the Corinthians who had a a superficial view of Christ's sacrifice and had an optimistic home run view of their own righteousness. Christ takes on our sin and we are declared righteous in God's sight. The great exchange, the joyous exchange. One way Luther explains this is in terms of a marriage and possessions becoming common between husband and wife. Christ brings his righteousness into the marriage and it is not our own, but by faith we are married to him and we can call his righteousness our own. Luther said, faith unites the soul to Christ as the wife to the husband. It follows that all they have becomes theirs in common as well good things as evil things so that whatsoever Christ possesses that the believing soul may take to itself and boast of as its own. And whatever belongs to the soul, that Christ claims is his. If we compare these possessions, we shall see how inestimable is the gain. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and condemnation. Let faith step in, and then sin death and hell will belong to Christ and grace, life, and salvation to the soul. For if he is a husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's and at the same time impart to his wife that which is his. We need to run home by faith again and again to the joyous exchange of our sin for the righteousness of Christ crucified. I would ask you today, before God, to hate your sin and run back to your baptism, remembering that in it you died with Christ by faith. You were betrothed to Christ. It's a wonderful marriage to enter into. He took on your sin and took it down to death, sparing you the just wrath of God. You died in him and received his righteousness, a beautiful garment in place of your rags. Go get the clothes you were given that day. Remember that you were called a new creation in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word of faith is near to you now. Go get your clothes. Be reconciled to God. Sometimes on my way home from work, I passed by the Harrison Opera House. Over the last season, they've had on their marquee an allusion to a famous quote. It says something like this, love that is not madness is not love. 
I don't totally agree with that. But I kind of do. Isn't it true that as reasonable as our faith is, there's a holy madness at the heart of it? A joyous exchange? The great servant of God, Richard Hooker, seems to agree. He said, such are we in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God himself. Let it be counted folly, frenzy, or fury, or whatsoever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this, that man hath sinned and God hath suffered, that God hath made himself the sin of men, and that men are made the righteousness of God. Beloved of God, all things are yours. It is a joyous exchange to be found by faith in Jesus Christ. Let this be our one comfort when we are surrounded by deceptive visions of grandeur. Christ crucified is our righteousness, the foundation of all good works of loving gratitude. Let this be our plea when we fear to suffer and groan in this present life, that man hath sinned and God in Christ hath suffered. Let the word of God be our support when we are weary and broken. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We dare not respond, I've heard this before. What else do you have? This is the knowledge we trade all the world for. Archbishop Ako is right. Faith derives from the confession made and shared through preaching. Preaching and teaching of the gospel are central to the gospel of God. Confess your sin to God and receive his righteousness by faith. Hear the gospel and be reconciled to God this day in the name of Christ. Run home to that sure foundation. Amen.